Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute for our panel on the One Incorporated versus Olson case. Uh, my name is Walter Olson, which is no relation, and I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies. Some of you are new to the Cato Institute, so uh, let me explain. It is a think tank uh, devoted to uh, research on principles of uh, free markets, individual liberties, and peace. Uh, we have a very active program called the uh, Center for Constitutional Studies, which looks especially at the Supreme Court and the direction of individual liberties in American jurisprudence. And it was through the work of the Center for Constitutional Studies that I first came to realize uh, just how interconnected issues of individual liberties and civil liberties are. Um, if you read Cato's uh, wonderful annual uh, Supreme Court Review, for example, a scholarly work that has been coming out for uh, a couple of decades, you find the connections, connections between equal protection law and the right to keep and bear arms, uh, connections between surveillance and search and seizure, uh, and some of the connections that we'll be talking about today. Um, uh, connections <clears throat> were in 1930s case on uh, the right of parents to select uh, private education for their children, turn out a few decades later to um, uh, strengthen and support completely different rights having to do with family life. And one of the things I've concluded from this is that uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence on individual liberties needs to be taken away from the red versus blue, left versus right matrix. Because when you've got an important decision about individual rights, usually one side likes it better than the other. And usually within 20 or 30 years, they're discovering that the other side has reasons to like it too and to begin citing it. So individual liberty is an inheritance that we all wind up using uh, in this country. Now, we have a panel on uh, a little-known case from 1956 from the Supreme Court that ought to be much better known. And to discuss it, I will uh, introduce all three speakers uh, before any of them gets a chance to speak. Uh, Lisa Linsky is a partner in the New York office of McDermott, Will & Emery. Uh, she uh, litigates cases in product liability, civil rights, and uh, many other cases. She is also the partner in charge of firm-wide diversity. Uh, and has won a number of awards in that area, including the New York City Bar Association's Arthur Leonard Award. Uh, previously, she was in the Westminster District Attorney's Office, where she was, among other things, Chief of the Child Abuse and Sex Crimes Bureau. Uh, speaking second will be Bob Corn-Revere. Uh, he is a partner in the Washington office of Davis Wright Tremaine and a First Amendment scholar, uh, as well as an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Uh, he previously served as chief counsel to the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. He is an expert on broadcasting law as well. Uh, he's been honored by the American Library Association um, through its uh, Office of International Freedom, uh, Intellectual Freedom, and Freedom to Read Foundation. Uh, finally, we will hear from Jonathan Rausch, whose article in the Washington Post I recommend to you all uh, get, got me interested in this subject earlier this year about the One Inc. case. Uh, Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution uh, in Governance Studies. Uh, his writing has appeared especially in the Atlantic and National Journal, but basically every other periodical you can think of um, over the years. Uh, his highly acclaimed books include um, two of special interest today, uh, Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America, 
And his earlier book reissued, I believe, under Cato auspices recently, Kindly Inquisitors, uh, some say the best modern book on why we need free speech. Uh, let me begin by welcoming Lisa Linsky. Good afternoon. Oh, yes. If you would uh, turn off all of your cell phones so we don't have any interruptions during today's program. Thank you. The Mattachine Society of Los Angeles, formed in 1951. By the way, not to be confused with the Mattachine Society of DC. This was a nonprofit organization. And it was formed to, among other things, educate the public about the scientific, the historic, and the critical points of sexual variance. In other words, homosexuality. And one of the things that the Mattachine Society chose to do was publish a magazine. And that magazine was first published in 1952. It was called One, the Homosexual Magazine. Now, one was an attempt to open the eyes of the public at a time when homosexuality, or frankly, any kind of sexual deviance, wasn't discussed. It was altruistic in purpose. It was bold. It was evolved. But we can't start a discussion of one magazine and the Mattachine Society and the case of one v. Otto Olson without stepping back, without going back and taking a historical perspective on what was going on in this country in the 1950s. So I'm going to start there. The 1950s. Some of you in this room are way too young to know anything about the 1950s, but some of us aren't. The era of Leave it to Beaver and the Donna Reed Show post-World War II, when there was in this country an innocence, a belief, a value system based on the American family. The 50s were also a decade that saw growing tension and competition between the United States and the former Soviet Union, an intensification, if you will, of the Cold War, a struggle between capitalism and communism, that preoccupied the American government. For the federal government in this country, the 50s was a time of extreme paranoia, of political conservatism. It has been referred to as the second Red Scare, a time when government officials in this country, such as Senator Joseph McCarthy, Senator Alex Wiley, and FBI director himself, J. Edgar Hoover, embarked on an anti-communist crusade that encompassed gays and lesbians. It was in 1954 that the postmaster of Los Angeles declared a ban on the mailability of one magazine, the first serious gay magazine of ideas, not pornography and not obscenity. The postmaster's ban came on the heels of President Dwight Eisenhower's Executive Order 10450 in April of 1953. The executive order declared homosexuals, and by the way, it didn't use the word homosexuals. The order used the word sexual perverts. 
but it declared sexual perversion and sexual perverts a national security risk based solely on sexual orientation and effectively banned gays and lesbians from employment with the federal government. What we see from the documents that I'm uh, about to show you is a ferocity with which Hoover and his cohorts brought the full weight of their authority and the authority of the Bureau, the FBI, to bear on anyone who dared out him. These documents that I'm about to show you demonstrate that Hoover was willing to bring all of his government authority and then some to interrogate, intimidate, threaten, and punish anyone who dared to suggest that he or anyone else in the federal government, particularly the FBI, might be gay. When one magazine had the audacity to run an article suggesting there were homosexuals in the FBI, this meant war on the magazine. So let's take a look at what the Mattachine Society of DC and McDermott, Will and Emery, its pro bono uh, legal counsel, has discovered so far about one. This first slide that I'm showing you is dated March of 1952. And it was a, an FBI memo to the director, the director being Hoover himself. And the subject was a gentleman by the name of John Markinick. Mr. Markinick worked for the National Labor Relations Board. And at the time of this memo, when he was investigated, he had worked for the NLRB for 11 years. What was Mr. Markinick's crime that spurred an FBI investigation into his life? He was at a dance with his wife, and at his table was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Terry. Mr. Terry worked at a local bakery. What is significant about this bakery? Well, it happened to be across the street from the Justice Department. The eyes and ears in a bakery. And what happened was Mr. Markinek made an off-the-cuff remark, off-the-cuff remark, and said to Mr. Terry, so isn't it is it true that Mr. Hoover is a queer. With that, the informant, Mr. Terry, reported this to the FBI. And the next thing we learn is that Mr. Markinek was the subject of an FBI investigation. Now, there are a lot of sections to this memo. I just wanted to highlight a few of them for you. But note the, the bullying that went on for anyone who dared mention something like this, something so inflammatory, something so baseless. That was a joke. <laughs> but in talking about the interrogation of Mr. Markinick, the FBI uh, agent who questioned him says, Markinick was subjected to vigorous interrogation to which he appeared to be badly frightened. And in the next paragraph below there, right over here, Basically, Mr. Markinek gets down on his knees and apologizes for making such a foundless comment about the uh, director of the FBI and gives his assurance that this will never again happen. He will never open his mouth and say something about the director or anyone else in the federal government who may be gay. And by the way, while the agents questioned uh, Mr. Markinek, they asked if he was himself a pervert. Takes one to know one? In any event, 
As the agents reported to uh, Director Hoover, Markinect had been vigorously set straight and will not engage in this type of gossip in the future. Now, I want to bring your attention to the handwritten note down here at the bottom of this document. And basically what the note says is, let's report Markinek to his employer, to the National Labor Relations Board, so that they know about his activities. That note, by the way, was signed, and you can't see it there, but trust me, that's Clyde Tulson, the associate director of the FBI, and more uh, recently known as Hoover's companion. The yes was Mr. Hoover himself. Now, let's fast forward. By the way, this was 1952. So this was uh, around the same time that one magazine issued its first edition in 1952. I'm sorry, I can't see that. <laughs> that was a joke, too. Um, OK, so now let's look at uh, these next few documents dealing with Senator Alexander Wiley from Wisconsin. Now, Senator Wiley happened to pay a visit in April of 1954 to New York City. And when he was in New York City, he walked by a newsstand, and he saw a publication called One, published for and by homosexuals. And he was appalled, dumbfounded, actually, was the word he used, when he realized that such a magazine was being out for public sale, but also that it was being sent through the US mails. He took it upon himself. He became a crusader, if you will, and decided to write to the Postmaster General, Mr. Summerfield, about the use of the mails to disseminate such vile trash. This is a document from the US Senate, which attaches, oh, by the way, it's sent to a member of the FBI, uh, a copy of the magazine, as well as the letter that was written by um, Senator Wiley to Postmaster General Summerfield. And this is a kind of a long letter, but I want to direct your attention to this paragraph right here, where he says, Senator Wiley, the purpose of my letter is to convey the most vigorous protest against the use of the United States mails to transmit a so-called magazine devoted to the advancement of sexual perversion. Now, if you look at the next page here, he appeals to Summerfield's keen sense of moral principle to give this matter his very prompt attention. And indeed, that is what happened. Because some six months later, after the Summerfield letter by Wiley, what happened? It was October of 1954, 60 years ago this year, that the October 1954 edition of One was banned from mailability by the Los Angeles postmaster, Otto Olson, thus infringing on the First Amendment protected rights of free speech by the members of the Mattachine Society and of One Magazine. <coughs> we have reviewed documents that demonstrate the government conspiracy that was brought to bear against this tiny publication, this publication that was not about obscenity, but rather, rather about the federal government's attempt to silence an emerging gay and lesbian subculture, a new movement in our country. 
So let me quickly uh, flash through, because my timekeeper here keeps sending me these messages, uh, and I told him I wasn't going to stick to the time, um, uh, about uh, some of these documents. This one in particular from January of 1956. So this was a couple years later. But this shows the, the FBI's uh, investigation of one magazine and the FBI looking into the Mattachine Society, a homosexual group in LA. In 1953, you'll see here that the Bureau opened an investigation on the Mattachine Society because of the possibility that the group was communist-controlled or infiltrated. By the way, a closing report was later submitted because they couldn't find any evidence of subversion by the Mattachine Society. What I want to point your attention to is, again, this handwritten note here. I think we should take this crowd on, meeting the homosexuals, the Mattachine Society, one magazine, and make them put up or shut up. Also, Clyde Tulson. The comment, I concur, by Mr. Hoover. And what did they do? They brought in William Lambert, the chair of the One Inc. board. And they accused him of having written the article in which members of the FBI were accused of being gay. What do they say about Mr. Lambert? Mr. Lambert is strictly no good. And he ta they talked about the Mattachine Society as well and said that they were all no good. This next document from February of 1956 confirms that the handwriting on that January 56 document I showed you a moment ago was, in fact, from Mr. Tolson. I think we should take this crowd on. And the director himself, Mr. Hoover, I concur. This also says how they closed the Mattachine Society investigation because there were actually, uh, there was no evidence of any communist infiltration. The last slide I want to show you that has some historic value is this one dated March of 1956. And what's significant about this particular document is that Mr. Hoover himself wrote to DOJ, to the Department of Justice, to Assistant uh, Attorney General Warren Olney. And he said to him, look, here's a copy of one magazine. Oh, and by the way, here's the October 1954 copy of the magazine. Look at it. Tell us, is this obscene? So for the director of the FBI to get down in the weeds and try to influence the mailability of one magazine really tells you the extent to which the federal government was hell-bent on making sure that homosexuals did not have the exercise of free speech in this publication, that they would not be able to read about homosexuality and be educated. And what's more, the federal government made sure that the public would not be educated about homosexuals and homosexuality. These next few documents, I'm just going to show you them real quickly. These are responses from some of the FOIA requests that the Mattachine Society of, District of, of DC and the um, McDermott Law Firm have worked on in an effort to get documents, historic documents, that we believe the Postal Service has either destroyed or is not being forthcoming with. And as a result, we see that the Postal Service, in response to our FOIA requests, said things like, 
hey, that was a long time ago. That was 61 years ago. We don't, we don't know where these documents are. And then when we went back and appealed this decision, which frankly we felt was a denial of our FOIA request, they came back and again said, sorry, we, we, we don't have them. In August, we subsequently learned that NARA, the National Archives, did a search for documents pertaining to one. And guess what? They didn't find Postal Service documents, but they did find 250 pages of DOJ documents. What does this mean? It means they're out there. It means we have to get our hands on them. And it means that the Mattachine Society of DC is not going to stop until we do. So let me just very, very quickly, and this is something that I hope we'll discuss uh, a little bit later after my esteemed colleagues give you their opening remarks. Let me just talk to you uh, briefly about why we're doing this work. Because you know some people have said, well, this is interesting, but it was a long time ago. Who cares? We're on to different issues now, marriage equality, uh, parenting rights, workplace equality, ENDA, we've got to get ENDA passed. And to that I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the work of the Mattachine Society is a testament to history itself. It's a testament to uncovering deleted histories of LGBT Americans. It's a way of giving voice to individuals who didn't have the opportunity to stand up for themselves. People like Dr. Frank Kameny, for example, who was fired from his job with the federal government in 1957, just about the same time that Eric Julber filed his uh, writ for his petition for certiorari with the United States Supreme Court. Dr. Kameny, who never was able to get another paying job for the rest of his career, but kept fighting and founded, was one of the founders of the Mattachine Society of DC. So there are a lot of reasons why the work that we're doing is particularly relevant. Educational, accountability, and evidentiary. For those of you who followed the Windsor case and the Perry case, you may recall that Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, made a remark in his dissent, I believe it was in the Windsor case, and he said that there were snippets of history, snippets, and snippets do not add up to animus and discrimination and bigotry. And I'm here to tell you, as a partner of McDermott, Will & Emery, who has been working with Charles Francis and Pate Feltz, both of the Mattachine Society, who are here with us today, that these are not snippets. We are uncovering critical evidence that show a very lengthy and robust paper trail of animus and discrimination by the federal government to LGBT Americans going as far back as the 1940s and the 1950s. So with that, I'm going to stop. Thank you for the courtesy and uh, turn it over to my colleagues. I'm going to step in for a moment to change from one PowerPoint presentation to the other. Uh, thinking as I do about how lucky we are to no longer live under an American government capable of retaliating against its political critics through the use of law enforcement. Um, the, uh, we sure got out of that one, didn't we? Um, and now five, okay, I think it's all set up. Uh, Bob Corner's there.
Well, thanks, Walter, for the invitation to speak. And Lisa, it's very nice to meet you. And Jonathan, to join you for, for a panel on uh, these issues. I have to say, I find this history of the FBI uh, particularly fascinating, um, particularly since this is the agency that devoted about two years and the resources of a number of field offices from around the country to determine whether or not the song Louie Louie is obscene. Uh, and so this is, in its own way, part of the same tradition. It's where two unfortunate American traditions come together, a tradition of discrimination against homosexuals and a tradition of censorship. Um, I first learned of this case uh, just not that long ago when I read Jonathan's blog entry talking about how this was the 60th anniversary of uh, One Inc. versus Olson. Um, which I was surprised I hadn't heard about, and then was a little bit gratified to find out that actually the issue that was de determined to be unmailable and that was censored was issued the month I was born. So I thought, well, I better look into this. Um, what I th find is an interesting recurring theme, though, uh, Lisa mentioned it and I saw it in, in uh, Jonathan's blog entry, was the idea that younger people, and maybe there are a few of you out there that went around in the 1950s, not that many, but a few. Uh, and, and Jonathan wrote, it would be hard for anyone under 40 to understand what life was like for gay Americans uh, a couple of generations ago. I find the same is true of people when we talk about censorship. People have no idea how pervasive it was. And it infected all aspects of uh, American culture. For example, uh, radio uh, was subject to... Uh, a great deal of censorship. In fact, all media were. Now, people do have an awareness that radio and television are subject to censorship today because we still have an FCC that is busy at work. Um, but it used to be even more active. For example, in um, 1938, the FCC issued an admonition to NBC for an episode of a uh, program with Charlie McCarthy and Mae West as a guest star. They were doing a skit called Adam and Eve, and they said there wasn't anything improper about the language, but it, the intonations of Miss West were, were suggestive. Uh, she would say things like, why don't you come up to my place, little man, and I'll let you play in my woodpile. Uh, but uh, anyway, so that was uh, the subject of enforcement. But of course, everyone is familiar with George Carlin and the Seven Dirty Words. That type of censorship is still with us. There was also pervasive censorship of cinema and of the movies. And this happened in a variety of different areas and for different reasons. In World War I, for example, under the Espionage Act. Here's an example of a film, The Spirit of 76, that was um, actually the producer was um, convicted and sentenced to five years in prison for making this movie about the American Revolution because it showed British soldiers committing atrocities during the American Revolution. And this was seen as damaging to the war effort when the British were our allies in 1917. Of course, sex was uh, a subject of censorship as well. And this continued throughout the history of cinema. Uh, it wasn't until 1952 that the Supreme Court decided that cinema was uh, entitled to the same First Amendment protections as other media. And it wasn't until 1965 that the Supreme Court addressed the existence of state censorship boards that would review films in advance. Uh, as a matter of fact, the last censorship uh, board that existed in Dallas continued to exist until 1993. Poetry was the subject of censorship. 
As a matter of fact, uh, Allen Ginsberg's Howell was subject to an obscenity prosecution in San Francisco, of all places, mm -hmm. uh, in 1957. Fortunately, uh, Lawrence Ferling Ferlinghetti, who published the, the film, was found to be uh, not guilty of obscenity. Um, ironically, 50 years later, you could still not read Howell on the radio because of FCC regulations. Of course, comedy, subject to censorship. Here's our friend Lenny Bruce, who was uh, arrested and prosecuted uh, all over the country, in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. Uh, four of the bluest cities in the bluest states in America, but in the late 50s and early 1960s, his act was beyond the pale. Uh, he was actually convicted in Chicago and New York. In Chicago, the conviction was ultimately overturned on appeal, and in New York, it wasn't because Lenny uh, died of a, a morphine overdose before his you know, appeal was perfected. But in 2003, uh, Governor Pataki of New York issued a posthumous pardon for Lenny Bruce. And, of course, books have always been subject to censorship, uh, ranging from uh, books about lesbianism, The Well of Loneliness, to just straight sex with Lady Chatterley's lover. Um, there's a long and, unfortunately, rich history of censorship of books in America and of magazines. And it's hard to imagine how pervasive it was. You've heard about some of these literary classics that were subject to celebrated cases. But if you go back to the 1920s, for example, there was one magazine, a literary magazine, that was de determined to be unmailable because one article in the magazine used the word breasts. Mm. Um, in 1928, customs officials and postal officials got together in a conference to determine which publications really shouldn't be either imported into the country or allowed to be mailed. They came up with a list of 700 titles. That was 1928 alone. Now, the reason for all this is because of a history of censorship that goes back to the 1870s, uh, thanks to uh, Anthony Comstock, not the only person, but he was a driving force in the first serious federal regulation of obscenity. And uh, he was a former dry goods clerk who uh, first became a vigilante and then created the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Now, you might be able to see its seal down here in the corner. I don't know if you can make it out in the back of the room. It is a remarkable uh, bit of work. It shows one man apprehending a miscreant and another um, burning books. And that was how the Society for the Suppression of Vice wanted to be known. Now, the law that Anthony Comstock was responsible for was the Act for the Suppression of Trade-In and Circulation of Obscene Literature and Articles of Immoral Use. Now, this was a very broad law. Uh, Anthony Comstock was a Puritan and uh, both in mind and in practice, he not only wrote the law, he was appointed a special agent of the post office to enforce it. He would actually make arrests. He would break down doors. And this is in the days when they banned books. They didn't just prohibit the books. They burned them, and they melted down the plates. You'll notice when you read the text of the law that it isn't uh, limited to just obscenity as people think of it today. It also talks about prohibiting any information about prevention of contraception, and also any information about abortion. So it was a very broad law. And by the way, still on the books today. Now, this 
was a product of Victorian uh, morality. Now, there's Queen Victoria in 1842. She looks okay. Uh, or time wasn't very good to her. Um, but it represents uh, uh, sort of the mindset of the times and also the legal standard that was imported to the United States. This is a, a British case involving their 1857 obscenity law. But it basically said that anything that was obscene was something that would tend to deprave or corrupt the minds who are open to such immoral influences and regardless of any merit of the work. So a single passage in a single book to the most susceptible person was the standard for obscenity. And that was the standard the United States adopted in the wake of the Comstock law so that it could be used to suppress anything, uh, involving, anything involving sex. This changed as American constitu constitutional law began to develop. Um, this is the landmark case, Roth versus the United States, decided in 1957. And the timing is critical for the issues that we're discussing today. It is the case that many people, when they go to law school, learn is one that, where the Supreme Court held that obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. And it's true. It does hold that. But it also was a transformation of obscenity law in one that was very speech protective. It would be like saying that New York Times versus Sullivan stands for the proposition that libel is not protected for, by the First Amendment. And it does stand for that, but it sets a very high constitutional bar before you can punish someone for defamation. In the same way, Roth versus the United States was a revolution in obscenity law in the United States. Thank you. One thing before I even get into the test that it established that I think is remarkable is to read this statement from Justice Brennan, where he wrote that sex and obscenity are not synonymous. Sex, a great and mysterious motive force in human life, has indisputably been a subject of absorbing interest to mankind through the ages. It is one of the vital problems of human interest and public concern. Quite a contrast from Anthony Comstock. It's actually a very sex-positive attitude, even though it recognizes that there is still an area of law beyond the pale. <coughs> the standard that the Roth case established was also a revolution in thinking about these issues. First, because it overruled the Hicklin test, which had been the Victorian-era British test that American courts had used before this time. It also said that instead of looking at the most susceptible person, you look at the average person in the community to determine whether or not something could be considered obscene. You look at the work as a whole, not isolated passages. And you also look at whether or not you're dealing primarily with the prurient interest, which is a shameful or morbid interest in sex, and whether or not something is utterly without redeeming social importance. A piece of work had to meet all of those elements before it could be declared obscene. By the way, the Hicklin test is pretty much what the FCC still uses for its indecency rules, but that's a different presentation. <laughs> now, when this change happened in 1957, it was at a critical time for the Olson case, bringing us back to today's topic. One versus Olson was decided by the Ninth Circuit in early 1957, and rehearing was denied in the spring. This was a couple of months before the Supreme Court decided the Roth decision. And in the Olson decision in the Ninth Circuit, it expressly relied on the Hicklin test. Basically, you see it here. The test for obscenity is whether the tendency of the matter is to deprave and corrupt the morals of those whose minds are open to such influence and into whose hands a publication of this sort may fall. Exactly the test that was overruled in Roth. 
so that when one versus Olson comes back to the Supreme Court or is, reaches the Supreme Court in 1958, it really just took one line. The court reversed it without opinion and simply said, the petition for writ of certiorari is granted, the Ninth Circuit is reversed, and it cites Roth versus the United States. You really didn't have to say anything more. So was this unique? Well, not really, because at this time, uh, you had a whole series of cases that were reaching the Supreme Court under the previous test that were affected by what was happening under, under the new standards. So between 1957 and 1968, there were 13 different obscenity cases that produced 55 separate opinions. Uh, needless to say, the court was having to figure out in this nebulous area of the law how it was going to interpret what obscenity means. And there were, as, as I mentioned, a range of opinions. Justices Black and Douglas believed that there should be no obscenity law, that the First Amendment was absolute. Justice Potter Stewart believed that only hardcore pornography should be prohibited. And of course, Justice Stewart was famous for his quote in Jacobellus versus Ohio in 1964 when he said, I might not be able to intelligibly define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. Actually, as it turned out, he didn't know it when he saw it uh, later on because he agreed with, sadly, a minority of justices in 1974 that there really shouldn't be obscenity law anymore. Justices Brennan, the Chief Justice Warren, also Justices Fortas and Goldberg believed that material short of hardcore uh, obscenity could, or pornography could be banned, but only so long as it had uh, redeeming social value. Um, Brennan, again, later reconsidered his position along with uh, Justice Stewart. And then finally, Justice Harlan believed that the federal role should be limited to hardcore pornography, but the states could be given a little more latitude. Now, given this range of opinions on the court, they, they were facing a quandary when they had these opinions coming up after Roth to decide what to do with the cases. So in every case where at least five justices could agree, but they couldn't agree on the reason, they would simply reverse the decision below, but not issue an opinion. And that's what happened in uh, one versus Olson. Uh, you can see, too, uh, between 1967 and 1971, there were 31 reversals in obscenity cases uh, without, uh, without opinion. Here's a representative example of another landmark case that was decided without an obscenity uh, opinion from the court. Critically important in the history of free expression, but again, we don't have a Supreme Court decision to point to. Grove Press. This was involving the publication of Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, which was first published in 1960, or 1934. And there had been attempts to either import it in the United States and then one attempt to publish it in 1940. Uh, this led to a prison uh, sentence of three years for the publisher. Uh, finally, in 1961, it was published by Grove Press, which led to 60 different obscenity cases in 21 states. Uh, again, this was all pre-Roth, after the Roth decision. Uh, this was reversed uh, without opinion in 1964. It was, the opinion was actually issued on the same day as Jacobellus versus Ohio, and all of the justices simply referred to their separate uh, opinions in Jacobellus saying, this is why we're reversing this case. Now, how did the court deal with the love that dare not speak its name? Uh, just because they didn't issue an opinion in one ink doesn't mean they didn't want to talk about the issue. And it did come up in a case, Man Manual Enterprises versus Day, in 1962. And this involved the prosecution of three uh, gay magazines, beefcake magazines, 
um, one involved, uh, called manual, one called trim, and this one called Grecian Guild Pictorial. And uh, here again, it was a post-Roth decision uh, where the court had a fragmented series of opinions, couldn't agree on a majority opinion for the court, but Justice Harlan wrote that the magazines in question, taken as a whole, applying the Roth standard, cannot, under any permissible constitutional standard, be deemed to be beyond the pale of contemporary notions of rudimentary decency. So even though you're talking about gay skin magazines, you have the court, it, finally in 1962, saying, whatever else you might say about these magazines, they are not patently offensive. But he probably couldn't resist adding but they're not to my taste. So Justice, <laughs> Justice Harlan uh, also wrote, uh, our own independent examination of the magazines leads us to conclude that the most that can be said of them is that they are dismally unpleasant, uncruth, and tawdry, but that is not enough to make them obscene. Uh, so that was uh, one opinion on the court representing two of the justices. Uh, justices um, Brennan, uh, the Chief Justice, and um, I forget who the third was, uh, took the opinion that uh, uh, the post office simply shouldn't have this power to declare uh, magazines to be unmailable. So that's sort of the underlying history of where these two traditions come together, both the restriction on, on gay rights as well as, as censorship. I think because we have recognized greater freedom for both, uh, we have greater human liberty overall uh, even though we've attempted to use uh, morality as an excuse to justify repression in the past, whether you're talking about speech or human relationships, um, freedom is really the true morality. Uh, my job is easy today, and as Henry VIII said to Catherine of Aragon, I won't be keeping you long. Um, <laughs> the folks in the audience today are an extraordinary group. I wish I could call out and introduce all of you, but I'd like to dedicate my next five minutes of comments to two people who cannot be here today. Um, one is Frank Kameny. Um, more about him in a bit. He died in 2011. The other is a man named Eric Jolber. Eric Jolber is the attorney who took on the one versus Olson case in 1954, took it to the Supreme Court on behalf of one magazine. He was a heterosexual man, and he, it turns out, is alive and well. He's living in Southern California, I think, in a nursing home. Is that right? And Charles Francis, who is here today, has gone out to speak to him and to thank him for his work on this case. So when we think about this as ancient history, it's actually not the principle is alive and well. Um, we may be, in as soon as this June, be about to get a Supreme Court decision uh, saying that same-sex marriage is a federal constitutional right. If that happens, it will be the most important gay rights case in history. But until it happens, or unless it happens, there is no doubt in my mind that one versus Olson from the point of view of gay Americans, is the most important civil rights case that we've ever had. Um, I would argue it's the most important civil rights case you've never heard of, period, because no one knows about it. Yet what happened in 1958 essentially put gay people on the path to freedom. All we had 
1954, when the Mattachine Society of Los Angeles began publishing one magazine, all we had was our voices. We had no money, no votes, no organization. Our people were deep in the closet. The powers arrayed against us were mind-bogglingly huge, powerful, and intense. You've heard uh, two people show you just what was arrayed against homosexual Americans. Like all minorities in that situation, in a majoritarian society, we had one and only one thing, our ideas and our ability to transmit those ideas and our ability to step forward and freely proclaim those ideas, admittedly at great personal risk. One magazine did so. It turns out to have been, this blows my mind, in the early 50s, it published a case for gay marriage. Unbelievable. It also published an issue in which an, an article called, I think, Sappho Revisited, a short story appeared. This attracted the attention of the postmaster who banned it from the mails. Now, in 1953, being banned from the mails meant you were totally silenced if you were a magazine. There was no internet, there were no fax machines, there was absolutely nothing you could do. You had been shut down. But an interesting point about that particular issue of one magazine that was banned by the LA Postmaster was not Sappho remembered the fiction inside, which was declared obscene. It was the cover story. The cover article was called, You Can't Say That, and it was an article criticizing the United States government's censorship. That's right, I'm not making it up. It could not be more perfect. <laughs> what the federal government was in fact censoring was criticism of federal censorship. What could be more classic than that? The author of that article that was censored, by the way, was one Eric Gilbert. Yes, the same. Um, in the context of the 50s, in the context today of Africa, of Eastern Europe, which my colleague James Kerchik has covered admirably, he's here today, we see again and again that the first thing you do to repress, oppress, persecute, and harass a minority is silence it. You make it impossible for them to speak. Then it is, of course, very easy to demonize us, and that's precisely what was done in those years. That's true of all minorities. It's even more true for gay people because the fundamental weapon used against homosexuals from time immemorial is what we called the closet. We were not harassed some of the time if we would agree to pretend that we were straight and live completely out of public view. In other words, we lived a life of shame, denial, and shadow. The only way out for gay people was to challenge the closet, and that means by definition a few brave people come forward, and that is what the one decision allowed. That one sentence from the Supreme Court, per curiam, they should do a lot more of that, by the way, in my opinion. <laughs> That's also another talk. That one sentence set us free, and if you need confirmation of that, it so happens by one of these wonderful historic coincidences, that right at the same time, I think the same month, in fact, that the Supreme Court issued its decision in 1 v. Olson, another man named Frank Kameny, 
received a letter from the U.S. Civil Service Commission announcing that he had not only been fired from his government job, but was banned from government employment because he was a pervert. Kameny was unusual. Unlike other people in that day, he was not intimidated. He appealed the decision through the federal bureaucracy. He lost. He then filed the first major gay rights brief before the US Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denied cert. Um, he went on to challenge the ban in his employment and other people's employment through Congress. He became the first openly gay person to run for Congress in 1970. He challenged, again, using words, his great weapon. He challenged the psychiatric ban on uh, the, the psychiatric uh, condemnation of homosexuality as a disease in 1972. I could go on and on. This man, who unfortunately can't be with us, um, lived long enough to receive the formal apology of the US government from the agency that hired him, whose head, by that point, was openly gay. But I want to remember Frank specifically for a few words in his Supreme Court brief. This is 1961. He's representing himself because no one else will do it, and the Mattachine Society of Washington. And notice what he tells the Supreme Court in two crucial passages. He's arguing that his loss of employment on grounds of being a homosexual are unconstitutional. He doesn't, in this passage, talk about the 14th Amendment. And of course, there were no anti-discrimination laws and civil rights, federal civil rights statutes on the books. What does he talk about? Two quotations. In World War II, Kameny writes, Petitioner did not hesitate to fight the Germans with bullets in order to help preserve his rights and freedoms and liberties and those of others. In 1960, it is ironically necessary that he fight the Americans with words in order to preserve against a tyrannical government some of those same rights, freedoms, and liberties for himself and others. Notice the key two words there, with words. Kameny knows that this is his weapon. He knows it's his only weapon. He wields it very effectively. And what are the grounds, what is the fundamental denial of right that happened with his firing? Is it his job, his livelihood, his income? It's all of those things, but Frank goes somewhere that's to me unexpected and profound, something deeper. The commission's regulation, as it stands, is unconstitutional, he tells the court, in that by establishing a tyranny over the mind of its citizen, it is inconsistent with and violates the provisions, stipulations, spirit, and intent of the First Amendment to the federal constitution. I read that the first time and I did a double take. Establishing a tyranny over the mind. What Kameny is saying is this is not just about expression, and it's certainly not just about making a living. This is about whether we can be free as human beings to live our lives as who we really are and to be sovereign over our own minds, which, of course, also means over our own 
loves. As you can hear, I still get a bit choked up when I think about what Kameny knew and understood. And I hate to think what would have happened if one v. Olison had gone the other way, if the Supreme Court had denied cert, which it might well have done, if Roth had not come down the year before. Frank Kameny would have been in jail for his advocacy. And the people who came after him would have taken, what, another generation to get to where we are today? And the idea that I could now be married in the state of Virginia, recognized by the federal government and by the state of Virginia, to a man, and that the Supreme Court will not only hear us today, but may rule in our favor, this, I believe, all dates to that fateful decision in 1958, and that is why I am so happy to be here with this amazing group, not just those who are here with me, but all of you, and especially Charles Francis, whose work has dug, done so much to dig this up. I'm so happy to be celebrating it with you today. This is a case, I believe, which after languishing for 60 years since its inception, will never be forgotten again. Thank you. We're moving now into general discussion, and uh, you will all be coming up with excellent pointed questions. But while you think those up, uh, let me first uh, ask Charles Francis to stand up, if he could, since he's been mentioned four or five times uh, in many ways. The, uh, the, the driving force between the, the effort to redocument uh, this case with the help of, of Lisa Linsky and her law firm. Uh, before we turn to general questions, I'd like to ask the panel to react, if they like, to each other's presentations. Um, Lisa, why don't you start? Well, I was very moved <laughs> um, to hear such a scholarly discussion of the standard, the obscenity standard, was informative and helpful, because it does show how things change even when we're at our most desperate and we think that our government and our courts are really not getting it, it is helpful to remember that things do change. It takes work, it takes advocacy, it takes an <clears throat> unstoppable force like the Mattachine Society of DC and, and Charles and Pate and so many others, but we can make change happen. Um, and as to Jonathan's comments, I, I'm like all verklempt by them. <laughs> they were lovely, and, and he's right. This is a very, 1v Olson is a very significant case that frankly has not had its due. It hasn't had its place in history, and we're all very grateful to Walter and to the Cato Institute for shining a spotlight on this very important case. And at this time, when it's been 60 years since that uh, Postal Service ban on the October 1954 edition of, of one. I just briefly add that uh, it's fascinating to hear the broader perspectives of the history with the um, documents unearthed with Freedom of Information Act um, requests, um, the context that uh, Jonathan brings to it as well. I mean, when you read cases, you often miss that important context because they, f they focus on a slice of history. But when you broaden out and to see what else was going on at the time, it, it really gives you a better sense of what kind of social change is taking place. 
Um, the only other thing I'll add at this point is a plug, because Jonathan was too modest to say anything, but if you have not uh, gotten his book, Kindly Inquisitors, please do that. It is one of the best reads you will have on free expression issues, and his presentation today was just a small slice of what you can expect. Uh, I have to disagree with Bob. It's not one of the best things you'll read. <laughs> <laughs> a few ground rules on the question and answer period. Uh, please uh, raise your hand, wait for me to call on you. Um, when I do, uh, don't start in right away. Wait for one of the uh, helpful people to bring a microphone. That looks like the helpful person. Um, and when you get the microphone, then um, uh, go ahead and uh, announce your name and affiliation if you feel like it. Uh, remember that we have a broadcast audience, so be clear and also be brief. Uh, make it a real question, rising inflection at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, in, in the back, we have a question to start off. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami, but I write for the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is uh, Obama's rights to implement these very values and tradition in foreign policy, given that gay lifestyle is very prevalent in Indian Army and Pakistani Army and in Afghanistan as a whole society, where it's very norm for a guys who have status, social status, to have couple, two or three guys as dancer, even he has married with a woman. So we are fighting for the, these very values in Afghanistan. So do you think Obama has every right to devote more resources to bring these kind of reform or changes in Afghanistan? I, Thanks. I, th I, th I think that Jonathan may have written a little bit about the uh, emphasis in American foreign policy to try to reach out on uh, issues of persecuted minorities like this. Um, uh, do you have any particular uh, comment on the overall uh, program, which is controversial, of course, in Eastern yeah, Europe I, and other countries as well? Uh, I, I don't know the facts about uh, the, the cases or countries you describe. I know that Secretary Clinton, uh, working for President Obama, has been far and away the most aggressive advocate for um, same-sex rights and equality around the world, and that's something very new. It's really an amazingly recent change until fairly recently the U.S. State Department used to drum out people who were homosexuals. Um, we've got some distance to go in our country, but yes, the administration has has changed postures, and I think it's I think it'll make a difference. That said, one of the big surprises to me about gay marriage is the predicted backlash in the United States has been much smaller than one might have thought. On the other hand, a backlash has occurred overseas, Africa, Eastern Europe, Russia. Um, and part of that is justified in the name of anti-colonialism and as resistance to an overweening United States trying to impose its values on others. So we do have a lot of work to do there uh, overseas. And that, I think, is going to be one of the next big jobs of work of civil rights activists here and elsewhere. More questions. Uh, Rick Sincere, second row. Rick Sincere with Gays and Lesbians for Individual Liberty. This question is from Ms. Linsky on a historical note. One of the memos you showed uh, said that the FBI had finished an investigation in 1953 of the Mattachine Society and found no security threat. Does it say something about the competence of the FBI investigators that they didn't notice that Harry Hay and Will Gear and other members of the Mattachine Society were in fact communists? Uh, I haven't come across that in, in any of our documents, but 
How about that? <laughs> Will Gear, later famous uh, as the patriarch, I believe, in the Waltons uh, TV show. Um, more questions? Uh, yes, in the very back there, wait for the microphone. Uh, some Art Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. Sir, I, uh, I was impressed with your presentation. Now, I have a more fundamental question about the government of the United States and our, the people who control this country, the right and the left, both together. Now, the kind of activities we are engaged in at this time, the spying on American citizens, the the entire war crimes that we are committed all, committing all over the world, all these things, 20, 30 years from now, we will be very, very ashamed as we are ashamed of the things that were being done in the 50s and 60s by those who controlled our government. How do we change this? I mean, we, we are continuously doing such, such, well, such tremendous amount of activities which it, are inhuman what, and barbaric. One, one of the themes, uh, and we could have a separate discussion of, of how bad uh, the conduct of, of one or another American government is at any given time, but I think the, one of the themes that we bring out from today is that uh, if you can't speak freely about it, you can't document it, and you wind up wondering, uh, decades later, you wind up wondering how bad was the government's conduct because they won't let you into the documents that let you find out. Now, we found out some unpleasant things about how the FBI uh, operated, and yet when we open the files of agencies like that, it also exonerates them from other things that we thought they might have been doing bad. So um, we've gone down a long road of openness in government. Uh, it has benefited uh, you know, the, the fiscal interests of, of avoiding waste, uh, but it has been tremendously beneficial to um, uh, correcting the mistakes of both domestic and foreign policy. I, I would just add that the premise of your question illustrates the need for eternal vigilance, that these fights never end, that you have to uh, continue to look at where rights are being restricted in one way or another. And also, since you mentioned the NSA, it indicates why it is so critically important that we have access to information about what the government is doing. Uh, the FOIA request for what the FBI was doing in the 50s, uh, finally bringing that information to light is critical. And with the NSA and the way uh, Edward Snowden finally brought to light uh, the idea that uh, the government is doing many things that we aren't aware of. Uh, now, uh, it's, it's comforting, I suppose, in a way, to hear uh, national security officials say, oh, it's very good we have this debate now. Uh, I tend to look at it a somewhat different way, that it's usually better to debate things before the government starts doing them to you. But at least we're having that debate now. And, and I would add, I think that's a really great point that you raise, sir. And you know, it really underscores the work that the Mattachine Society of D.C. and McDermott are doing together. Um, Amiko Hastings, who is the curator and librarian of books and digital projects at the University of Michigan's uh, Clements Library, said the following, and I think it's relevant to your point. Um, In preserving documents and records, archivists have enabled the documents to be revisited and reinterpreted as each ear of ear of history reshapes the collective memory. Now, she was talking about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, but that statement is so relevant to really all chapters of our history. Certainly with respect to LGBT history, we will and we are revisiting it and reinterpreting it through the years, particularly as our civil rights are continuing to evolve. 
human beings take time to evolve. When you look back at the era of the 50s and all that was going on, we think we've progressed so much. And we have in many ways. The fact that we're even having this public discourse, this conversation, it's being televised, is tremendous progress. At the same time, look what is happening elsewhere in the world. People who are being killed in Uganda because they're suspected of being gay. It's, we've got a long way to go. We have to pass ENDA. You know, when Jonathan was talking about Dr. Kameny, I couldn't help but think, well, okay, that was 1957 when he was terminated from his job with the federal government. But guess what? A lot of LGBT people can still be terminated from their jobs. We don't have a federal ENDA. So we're not there yet either. And for the other side of the ENDA viewpoint, check, check my article at, uh, at Cato. Um, <laughs> I wanted to use the uh, moderator's prerogative of, of throwing out a question because uh, we promised in some of the uh, announcement material uh, to shed a light on the relationship between freedom of expression and so, uh, historically marginalized groups. Um, and uh, not a day goes by when you don't see arguments in the press, both here and in countries like Britain, that uh, free expression is dangerous to marginalized groups because it allows hate to flourish and it allows uh, hateful forces to organize and propagandize. Uh, two examples from England within the last uh, couple of weeks, the conservative government has announced a proposal for so-called extremist disruption orders by which the government would be able to go in and forbid uh, su supposed extremists from using Facebook, Twitter, or other social media. Um, and they intend to use this apparently against uh, so, uh, alleged extremists from uh, militant Islamists to uh, people who preach uh, racial hate or, or, or hate against uh, gays. Uh, even more recently, a debate was shut down at Oxford about uh, abortion, and one of the students who helped to shut it down uh, wrote a boastful uh, uh, article in The Independent, one of the leading newspapers there, explaining why she was proud of doing so. Quote, the idea that in a free society absolutely everything should be open to debate has detrimental effect, has a detrimental effect on marginalized groups. Uh, if she were here, what would you tell her? Any? Who first? <laughs> uh, well, if we haven't plugged it enough already, Kindly Inquisitors has a new <laughs> afterword that's devoted specifically to this. And I mention it because it's, it's a very live issue right now. Um, the argument has gained traction, especially in Europe, not so much in America, that if enough people start saying enough things that are hateful or just wrongheaded or just bigoted, that creates a hostile environment for minorities. They cannot participate fully as citizens. They become repressed, and therefore, they need protections of various sort. And I, I reject that entirely as a gay man. There are a lot of reasons for that, um, which you can read about <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Have I done enough of that yet? Author signing afterward. But, but a sentence for each of the two most important. The first is we've got a whole lot of history that shows that minority rights are not safely entrusted to majoritarian enforcers in a political society. It just doesn't work. And again and again we see this. And again and again we see laws against obscenity and hate and, um, and religious defamation used against groups that inconvenience governments or authorities or college censors or whatever. 
Uh, and I hate to think what would have happened to gay people had you had these kinds of laws when they could have been used against us, as surely they would have been. By the time you have a consensus to have a hate crimes laws, of course, you don't need it because the minorities involved generally have social protection. Second and more important than going back to the point that the gentleman in the back row made, how do we get out of this stuff? Well, the answer is we make moral progress. We evolve as a species in a morally positive direction, generally toward freedom and human dignity. And we do that through a system of debate and discourse. And we don't do that by starting with the right answer and then eliminating the wrong ones by brute force. We do that by pitting prejudices against each other, treating them as a social resource, including the bigoted, nasty, oppressive, and hateful ones, pitting them against each other and trusting as over time, it almost always does that the superior moral opinions will win. That's what worked for gay people. And the last thing I would ever like to do is see that shut down by well-meaning people who claim to speak for me, but in fact, do not have my best interests at heart. add after that, uh, just to say that uh, uh, whether or not you're using the government to enforce good ideas or bad ideas, I go back to the words of Frank Kameny that uh, Jonathan quoted, that the government shouldn't have power over the mind, and that that is precisely why the First Amendment exists. And from a just a practical standpoint, hate crime laws in Europe have done nothing to quell the growth of right-wing nationalist movements. Uh, and yet in the United States, where the Supreme Court has held that even the lunatic rantings of the Westboro Baptist Church and their homophobic um, protests are protected under the First Amendment, and that has done nothing to slow the growth of progress toward uh, same-sex marriage and toward general social acceptability of homosexuals in the United States. Yeah, I, in fact, hate speech helps us. This is something I really wish I could put across to our you know, the, the well-meaning people who try to help us with all these protections. First, these protections further, they, they confirm the stereotype of weak homosexuals who need help and can't defend ourselves, which is not true. But second, letting the haters have their say makes us look good by comparison. That's how we got here. Um, so please spare us attempts to protect us from haters. And, and I would just add that I think one of the best ways gay people can fight this kind of thing is to be out. Stand up and be out. And I realize that for some people, it's dangerous to do that. I realize for some people, it's damn scary to do that. And I say, do it anyway. Be out, because when a person who claims to hate gay people gets to know you, they may just change their minds about gay people. Can I ask a question, Lisa? Yeah. Um, you're doing a lot of document requests from, I guess, a lot of presidential libraries and yes. archives. What kind of attitudes are you finding 60 years later when you go after this stuff? Are you hitting like Stonewall and reluctance? Are you hitting cooperation and acceptance or what? All, all of the above, I would say. Right, Charles? I would say all of the above. I, I don't think that the uh, stonewalling, if you will, is um, necessarily about uh, anti-LGBT sentiment. I think it's bureaucracy. I think it's red tape. I think it's trying to navigate through a large organization or organizations to find the documents. I don't know that, for example, someone who sends a FOIA request that has nothing to do with LGBT issues is having any better a time at it than we are. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think you're on to something, uh, both in the federal government and at the uh, presidential libraries, where the, the FOIA requests are seen as uh, work to do that someone else chose. And meanwhile, you've got some 
project that you wanted to do that was your own idea, and uh, uh, you'd always rather give priority to uh, carrying out your own ideas. Um, yes, uh, in the third row. Uh, Nick Little with the Center for Inquiry. I think it's interesting when when you talk about the government controlling ideas, because if we look at Lawrence, it was actions. It was about you know same-sex intercourse. If you look at marriage, it's actions. It's about the action of two men or two women getting married. Was there ever an attempt by the federal government to define homosexuality in a way to take it outside of just the the controlling of ideas, because it seems like otherwise it's a purely mental concept once you, once you take the actions out of it. We deny my world. We deny the distinction is meaningful. Um, the point of sodomy laws, in practice, you know, it's targeting a behavior. In, uh, I'm sorry, in principle, it's targeting a behavior. In practice, as we all knew, it targeted anyone who is gay. Um, who was seen as advocating what was then seen as a crime, soliciting what was then seen as a crime. You got fired from your job. And of course, you can't be what you are and think your thoughts and go about your life in a meaningful way if you're under threat of political persecution for acting on that. So it's like saying, OK, well, look, you can be OK believing in the tenets of Judaism. You can't go to synagogue and you can't practice. That's where we draw the line. I, no Jew would say that that was a meaningful distinction. So I would, in that sense, push back against the premise and say it's, it's all or nothing. It's front row, uh, Greg Angelo. Thank you. Uh, Gregory T. Angelo with Log Cabin Republicans. I uh, wonder, Jonathan, you're, you're correct. I, I, well, I, I agree with you, I'll say, that um, we haven't experienced that much blowback in the wake of all these marriage equality rulings, passage of marriage equality legislatively. But what we have seen, uh, if anything, is all these years after this one versus Olson case, uh, people who are Christians who are claiming similar freedom of speech uh, protections when it comes to photography, uh, baking the wedding cake. So I wonder, uh, and this question is actually open to anyone on the panel, how they, how they kind of, if there is a, if you see a, a, the Supreme Court having to consider a similar case uh, about freedom of speech and how that impacts uh, an individual's uh, perhaps right to discriminate in those cases, and, um, uh, and if that could inform the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling uh, if they do take up the case in the next session. Um, <clears throat> this is something that has been of continuing interest to the Cato Institute, which has filed um, uh, amicus briefs, not always successfully on behalf of uh, wedding photographers, for example, who uh, had objections to um, uh, religious objections to serving uh, same-sex weddings. <clears throat> Psychologically, you can imagine that uh, Supreme Court justices might uh, be worried about both issues at once. That doesn't mean that a case will present both issues uh, for resolution at once. But um, the, um, the feelings run very high out there um, among commentators on uh, the idea that once you have a discrimination law on the books, that it's supposed to be as, as sweeping and have as few exceptions as possible. Um, it's not clear to me that the Supreme Court is ready to uh, stand against what seems to be the spirit of the age on, you know, the more anti-discrimination laws that get passed, the better. I 
I wish it would, because I believe that uh, these laws would be better if they had uh, greater play for individual autonomy and, and choice. Uh, but that's not been a big theme of the court's rulings in recent years. I, I would just add that your question focuses on that sort of growing tension between anti-discrimination and um, freedom of expression. I think you can ask the question, could an editorial writer be forced to write an editorial praising homosexuality? Well, of course not. That would be an obvious First Amendment violation. I think you can say the same thing of a photographer who is compelled by law to uh, practice art in favor of a lifestyle that person uh, does not want to associate with. Um, it can extend to, to a baker. Um, again, it, it, there is a tension there, but I don't think you resolve that tension by having the government come in and be the referee and decide who's going to be compelled to express themselves in a way that the government now decides as the acceptable, the one acceptable way. Currently, you do have the government uh, uh, in, in New Mexico and elsewhere coming in to, to make just such decisions. I, it gets back to that eternal vigilance I was talking about. Uh, more questions? There was one in the... Okay. Yes, sir. Bob Spiegel, member of the board of the Stonewall Veterans Association and former member of the board of the American Civil Liberties Union. I waited till the end so I could go through a few points before I asked my question. Uh, questions, brief questions, please okay. only. No speeches. Oh, my, okay, then my question is that there are many people who believe that hate crime statutes implicate the First Amendment. And it would appear that many in the gay community support what would be called a hurt feelings exception to virtually every provision of the First Amendment. So I'd like to hear the panel speak about those two issues. Hate crimes and hate speech, two different issues. Anyone want to start? Um, well, first of all, um, we have to start with definitions. Hate speech, what is that? Uh, it, basically, it can be whatever someone finds offensive. Uh, and that's why there can be a, a, a significant tension between wanting to have a civil society and forcing people to limit their speech. Uh, Greg Lukianoff is sitting here in the front row. He is the president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, one of the continuing battles of that organization, and I'm proud to be able to assist with it, is to address campus speech codes, uh, where you have uh, basically the enforcement of civility on college campuses, meaning it is what Greg calls an offendedness sweepstakes. Uh, people who are offended by well, you name it, anything, can then uh, appeal to the sanctions of these very broad and indefinable codes to put a clamp on whatever speech they don't like. And you see that in the wave of uh, commencement speakers who are being disinvited uh, during what FIRE calls disinvitation season if they are uh, going to speak on something that is considered to be uh, politically inconvenient or that a vocal minority on a campus or even a vocal majority, it doesn't matter. Uh, considers to be um, wrong-headed. Uh, I think that uh, there needs to be a greater recognition, as Jonathan was saying, for protecting the speech that we hate, uh, because then you have a true debate and people in a free society can decide for themselves what they want to believe. So I take the question to be about hate crimes laws as opposed to hate speech laws. And many people believe that hate crimes laws Right. So. 
I think I think they do. I don't think hate crimes laws for those who are not on top of this are a bit different because they essentially they are additional penalties for people who commit crimes targeted at minorities and motivated by hate. Uh, uh, I think they do implicate the First Amendment. I don't think they're as clear cut, and I don't get nearly as worried about them as I do hate speech laws, which punish speech per se, because in hate crimes laws, you're punishing things that are already punishable anyway, and you're debating the length of the sentence. My first, one of my first openly gay articles more than 20 years ago was a gay case against hate crimes laws, but more on grounds that it's, I think, rotten crime policy, though I do worry a bit about the First Amendment. On the question, I, I think, the premise of, of your point was that a lot of gay people favor these protections. Is that it? Um, yes. And that is certainly true. Um, but here's the thing. My experience has been that gay Americans are no less supportive of the First Amendment than other Americans. And the, the broader issue is, is my very first managing editor at my very first newspaper job said, if you put the First Amendment up to a plebiscite of the American public today, it would lose. <laughs> So that's the ongoing educational struggle that I do with my gay friends and I do with my straight friends just as well, uh, which is every generation has to be taught afresh that the very counterintuitive proposition that we should specifically make room in society for the most vile things that people think and say, that's got to be taught all over again every year. It's easy for us to forget in 1791 Bill of Rights, when, they, when James Madison put freedom of speech, number one, this was a completely radical, untried idea in the entire history of the world. I mean, no one had even thought you could have a government without some methods to control speech and thought. And it's still deeply counterintuitive. But yeah, I, I don't think it's harder among gay people than straight people. Part of Bob's presentation, um, I meant to... Uh, uh, note at the time was, um, remember the Victorian standard of obscenity, which was uh, not, uh, as later changed in Roth, not whether it would tend to corrupt the average person, uh, but whether it would uh, corrupt what you might call the eggshell corruptee, you know, the, mo the most susceptible, most fluttery person. Uh, and if it would corrupt even that one person, uh, it was too obscene to be allowed publicly. We have somehow revived that with the new law of offense in that the test for whether or not a career is ruined or uh, someone is allowed to speak on campus is not whether what they say would offend the average person, but whether they would offend the eggshell offendee. Uh, I don't think it works in either case. Um, we are uh, about ready to adjourn for lunch. Let me give you uh, some directions on that because it um, involves going up two flights from here to the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Uh, um, you can do it uh, either by crowding into the elevators, which may take you a little longer because of their capacity, or simply by walking up the spiral staircase to flights. Uh, if you are looking for a restroom, um, when you're on the second floor and are walking toward the uh, conference center, you will notice a yellow wall. That's where the restrooms are. Um, I will see you there for lunch in a few minutes. Uh, please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you.